What makes a $100 bill worth more than another $100 bill? Well, it's a story. If you can prove that this one, one of them, is actually owned by Abraham Lincoln and you can prove it, one of them will be worth more than another. The same can be said about marketing. Stories matter. The brands that tell the most compelling stories win, whether that's in B2C or B2B, it doesn't matter. Our job as marketers are to bring the stories to life. That's where Kevin Lee and Shannon Deep comes in. They work with fast-growing companies like Oyster and Rattle to bring those stories to life. And now they both co-founded Bonfire where they help companies do the same and ignite their brands using the power of storytelling. In this Marketing Power episode, you learn first, the three steps to the brand storytelling framework. Second, how to craft a brand purpose. And third, the importance of brand archetypes and brand voice. And finally, number four, a career power-up that's helped Kevin Lee and Shannon Deep with their careers. Before I started, I created a free power-up cheat sheet that you can download for free to apply the brand storytelling framework that Kevin and Shannon talks about in this episode. You can go to marketingpowerups.com right now or find the link in the show notes and description of this episode. Anyways, are you ready? Let's go. Marketing power-ups. Ready? John. Thank you both for joining uh, Marketing Power-Ups. We're excited to be talking about uh, the brand storytelling framework that you both have applied to Oyster. Now, before we get into the deep end, uh, Shannon, you've been in like brand marketing leaderships for quite a while at Rattle, at Oyster. Um, you were at some uh, at a few agencies. I would. I'm mm-hmm. curious, first of all, like how you would define brand marketing because it's one of those things where like. You ask 20 people and you get like 30 responses as to what <laughs> brand marketing is. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll, I'll probably give something that's maybe a little a little woo-woo and then maybe Kevin can like bring it down <laughs> and make it a little more practical. Um, but I would say that brand marketing is the curation and evolution of the entire customer experience that somebody has with your, or not even customer experience, the entire experience that someone has with your brand. Um, And that can be everything from uh, news stories about your brand all the way down to the smallest touch points like error states and things. Mm. Um, So I think it can be a lot of different things, but globally it is the experience of your company to any external audience. Yeah. It's a great question to ask in an interview also because you get so many different perspectives <laughs> from brand, brand marketers. So did you like ask Shannon? Is... Did you ask Shannon that question? Or you're, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's like boilerplate for any brand marketing role because some brand marketers will say, oh, brand marketing is social media or, oh, brand marketing is voice and tone or oh, uh, probably like the answer that is almost like a, a biggest flag for me is like brand marketing is like the visuals, like the logo and stuff. And mm-hmm. I think brand marketing, the way that Shannon and I think about it is so much deeper than that. And if you right. almost think of like brand as the sum of all experiences with your company, brand marketing can almost be like the the shepherd of those experiences or the person kind of guiding and maintaining and quality controlling what that looks like and feels like. That's the, so- that's the right answer if you're ever interviewing with me. <laughs> Oh, people heard it. If you're looking to interview in brand marketing, here is the right answer. <laughs> and it's so much more, you mentioned it, it's so much more uh, expensive. I think when I think about brand, I think about like the feeling somebody has and that comes 
Shannon, you mentioned about the air estate, like something that is, it could bring a lot of like, ew, that's not, not like on brand or whatever, but like it is part of that experience or feeling that somebody has uh, when they're interacting with a brand, really. Yeah, you you have to think about, um, you know, corporations are not people, despite what, um, uh, you know, the U.S. law says, but um, you have to think about uh, your brand and your brand's identity almost as a person, and people aren't perfect. And so yeah. whenever you're thinking through your brand and how you want to show up, you can't just imagine your brand with everything going right all the time, like no gaps, no notes, you know, uh, as things will go wrong. You will sometimes um, have to disappoint customers either purposely or accidentally, you know, say you're discontinuing a feature for a strategic reason and you need to like communicate that and meet them where they are. And so just like dealing with every person in your life, you your brand also needs to show up in a in a multifaceted and and complicated way in that's in that same respect. I love that. I think that totally totally makes sense how you you put it there that sometimes you do have to disappoint them or it's not on purpose, but it is part of that experience that you have there. I want to talk about uh, tying brand into storytelling. You know, storytelling is is such a great part to really like amplify that feeling somebody has or that, uh, you know, that marketing that you have. I'm curious what that, you know, why it's such a powerful device that marketers need to be tapping more. I know, Kevin, you had this anecdote in this newsletter that you have that I'm going to, I'm a subscriber, by the way, I should be a paid subscriber. So I'm going to link that in the show notes and everybody listening should subscribe. You talked about this book, Alchemy, and how, you know, brand can, the storytelling can like really make the difference there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a differentiator for companies today. And, and yeah, that story um, from the book Alchemy, which is written by, I think he is like a senior vice president or something at the Ogilvy agency. So he knows his stuff about brand. And uh, the anecdote is that um, this advertising agency used to ask this test for aspiring copywriters. And one of the questions was, here are two identical 25 cent coins, quarters. Sell me the one on the right. And one candidate thought it through the problem was like, okay, I'll take the right-hand coin and I'll dip it in Marilyn Monroe's bag and I will sell you a genuine quarter as previously owned by Marilyn Monroe. And I just love that anecdote because ultimately we're selling the same thing at the end of the day, but the way that you talk about it with the, the universe of story that you build around the thing can totally impact the value and the perception of that thing. I think that is what brand can do, especially in like today's culture and markets where there's so much saturation of things. Yeah, I think that's such a it, it's such an important point to remember that there are eight different ways you could sell the same thing. Mm. Um, you know, you could you could tell the story of the three little pigs as a tragedy. You could tell the story of the three little pigs as a comedy, or mm. you could tell the story of the three little pigs from the wolf's point of view. And these pigs are in his neighborhood gentrifying it, and he like needs to get them out. You know, like there are. And the that. angle that you take <laughs> really, you know, and like that is your brand. Like, is your brand the wolf? Is your brand the comedy or is your brand the tragedy? And it's it's all part of the, but but your, but the base story 
uh, or the base thing that you're selling doesn't change. And I, I think another really great example of that is the significant objects project. Um, I think Kevin, you and I have talked about this before, but um, you can look it up. It's, it's still like extant and they have a book and everything. And um, uh, yeah, it was a, a group of, it was kind of half art project, half sociological experiment where they bought like a bunch of crap, like just like cheap things from like dollar stores or from thrift stores, uh, you know, that cost them maybe a total of like $20 or something. And then they took each thing and they worked with an artist. They worked with a, a writer to give it a backstory, a fictional, obviously backstory. And they put it on eBay and they saw, and they weren't like, you know, deceiving people. It was like, this is the the art story that goes with this object. And they saw how much money they could sell the objects for. And it was like something like a 900% increase in like what they, I I don't know the exact number. Don't quote me on that, but it was, it was an exponential increase in what people were willing to pay because they got it made them feel something. Mm. It wasn't just a little plastic toy horse that cost 50 cents. Yeah. It was a story. Yeah. I think one of the ways I've experienced this, and Shannon and I have talked about my love of water, which is like <laughs> kind of silly. But like, if you think of water as like one of the biggest commodities that there could ever be, like there are still so many water brands if you go into the store. And like, what is, how do you sell water in a unique and differentiated way? And you can do it so much through branding. Like there's water that is all about uh, you know, being in an aluminum can and water that's all about being sourced from Fiji. There's water that is like, think of like liquid death, which is, I don't even know how to describe the liquid death brand. Like I think, but it's all at the end of the day is water. And for most people, and if I'm being honest, probably me, like it all tastes the same, but like the brand is different. And that brand is what differentiates and tells the story, even for like huge commodities like water. And that brand can also affect, I think I, I forgot what it was. Uh, uh, this two guys, Penn and Teller, where like they gave water to people and then they're like, they they gave them the expensive water and it's like, this tastes, this tastes so much better. It's like so sweet. And it's like, it's all tap water. <laughs> so like your experience of the product can really affect by the story you tell of it, even though it's all essentially the same as yeah. that story with water. I think one thing that's, that I've experienced with brand over the years, so I worked at Buffer, which is social media management software. And so much of social media management software is the same, no matter what tool you use. But we would have people at Buffer who would pay for Buffer, regardless of what the product features were. They just wanted to like support the brand to be part of the brand experience. Like uh, that is like the Nirvana state of brand. I think it's if someone's willing to pay just to be part of your, your ecosystem, like that is yeah. wonderful. And I think that's, yeah. that's going to be like the future tech and marketing in my mind it's like brands that can do that are going to be the biggest brands once to win yeah never underestimate the power of the cool factor when a buyer is trying to like please a grouchy bunch of end users at the end of the day you know like so even if i was just i was just talking about this with someone even if your brand you are aiming brand initiatives at not necessarily your buyer but your fans Mm you are able to kind of like up that cool factor. And if it comes down to the choice between like this kind of like, you know, unexciting piece of software or the piece of software that like every couple of weeks, there's like some cool thing they did in the news, you know, even if they're functionally the same, you're probably going to go for the one that did the cool thing. Yeah. The other thing around that, I'm thinking like we're talking a lot about like more on the top of the funnel acquisition. 
this is also potentially a great like retention play where, you know, like I don't want to leave this brand, this company, because I don't want to leave the cool, the cool group. <laughs> and, you know, Apple has done such a good job. I mean, I'm, they do have that tech ecosystem, but they, people get so, their identity so associated with that feeling that they're like, be churning away is almost like pulling a piece of yourself or themselves apart from, from that. Would you agree or curious what you think? It's totally true. I I think you see a lot of those examples in the B2C space. Um, Like you mentioned, Apple, um, even direct-to-consumer brands, I think there's a lot of that cool factor and feeling like that loyalty or or things to a brand. I I believe it's very true in the B2B space also. Um, I know someone once told me that going through an RFP process is simply justification for an emotional decision that you've already made about the thing you're going to go with. Like I, I... Totally believe that 100%. I think it's true both in the top of funnel stage, but also in the bottom of funnel retention stage too. Like you want to stick with the brand. You want to stick with cool brands. And if the brand is cool enough, you will find rationale in order to stick with them in like a B2B context too. I love that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I actually want to get into the, the steps to the storytelling framework that you both worked at Oyster. Now, the very first step here is really to know your brand purpose. I know brand purpose. I'm thinking like going back to high school. I'm not sure. What is your life purpose? But you actually you provide a very specific uh, definition and like visual of what a brand purpose is, Kevin. I'm curious what you mean by brand purpose and, you know, what what exactly is that? Yeah. And there's lots of different ways to define brand purpose too. So this, the way that I've done it in the past, it's not any stretch the right way or the single way. Um, I stole mine from the Ogilvy agency. Again, I promise I read other things than Ogilvy. Like it just happened to be another one that caught my eye. Um, and this is one that companies like Wistia have used. Um, Ogilvy uses it for all the brands they work with. Um, and what you're trying to find is this intersection between a tension out in the culture and the best version of your brand self. And I think that is that sweet spot where those things overlap. That is your brand's purpose. And essentially brand purpose is like the why you exist in a way. And so as long as your why connects to something outside of yourself, something that is true in the culture today, that's going to be, it's almost like your product market fit arena is like, there has to be something external to you that resonates. And then there has to be a reason why you made the thing that you made and like, what is your, your best version? So that intersection is where you want to operate as brand purpose. And the way that you would express that is we believe the world would be a better place if, and then you kind of fill in the blank there. And so relative to the cultural tension and what you think your brand can bring, how do you make the world a better place? And that purpose becomes like the foundation for everything else you would do from a brand strategy perspective. Before I continue, I want to thank the sponsor for this episode, 42 Agency. Now, when you're in scale-up growth mode and you have to hit your KPIs, the pressure is on to deliver demos and signups, and it's a lot to handle. There's demand gen, email sequences, rev ops, and more. And that's where 42 Agency, founded by my good friend Camille Rexton, can help you. They're a strategic partner that's helped B2B SaaS companies like Wall, Teamwork, Sprout Social, and HubDoc to build a predictable revenue engine. If you're looking for performance experts and creatives to solve your marketing growth problems today and help you build the foundation for the future, look no further. Visit 42agency.com to talk to a strategist right now to learn how you can build 
a high efficiency revenue engine. Thank you also to the sponsor for this episode, Copy.ai. Now let me ask you a question. Would you rather cut grass with a pair of scissors or lawnmower? Now the answer is pretty clear, right? With the right tool or partner, you can turn tedious, repetitive, and boring tasks from hours to minutes. When it comes to on-brand content and copy, that's Copy.ai for you. Marketers from companies like Zoom, Okta, and SurveyMonkey trust it to produce high-converting copy for the campaigns with just a few clicks. Copy.ai team has created some of the best AI-powered marketing templates for ad scripts, podcast outlines, email marketing campaigns, content marketing plans, and more. You can go to Copy.ai to get those free marketing templates right now or find it in the show notes and description. Well, let's get back to this episode. That's super cool. I'm curious what that looks like. Uh, always or, or or I'm I'm guessing you're early stage of working at a rattle as well. But like, Shan, I'm curious, like, um, you know, what does that look like at a company? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it directly so I don't mangle it. So, uh, so like uh, like Kevin said, it's it's stated as something that you believe about the world, and the thing that you believe about the world could either be said directly or it could be sort of implied and you'll see what i mean in a second when when i read oysters so uh this this was this is oysters brand purpose oyster believes the world would be a better place if access to great talent and opportunity for great jobs was not limited by geographic location um so oyster was a global is a global employment platform and they help companies um everywhere hire people anywhere so borders don't matter um and you know they automate all of the the tricky processes uh, from like legal and finance and and payroll that would otherwise uh, complicate international hiring. And so what is inherent uh, in this brand purpose, like the thing that we believe about the world is that right now access to talent and great jobs are limited Mm -hmm. by geographic location. And the kind of truth that we're driving at there is that Oyster believes that that is uh, that that uh, by eliminating that we can reduce inequality. So like those two things uh, that that um, opportunity is limited by location is a driver of inequality, and so that's what the brand is aiming at fixing. So it kind of elongates the the distance between the initial belief and what your company is doing, but through that lens, you're able to not just say something very. Um, I don't know, Pat or wrote like, we want to reduce inequality. Like that, the mission of the company is to reduce inequality. Okay. But like, right. <laughs> like how yeah. and why specifically? And so you, you have to kind of connect those two things like through mm-hmm. that, that process. What I really love about this, this idea is, you, you know, specifically like seeing the problem in the world and how we're fixing that. Is it, it could be, it becomes a, a, like really a mission call almost like a roll call to get people excited not just like people outside but people internally as well like we're we're making the world a better place but like how (laughs) and then you describe it specifically Mm -hmm. by how and like that becomes more exciting to not just buy that product but work at a company that has something that has a a rally call to, to do something to fix something is that something totally. you call? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess like I just want to caveat. Or I, I don't want to be a killjoy here, <laughs> but I also I don't think that every company needs to save the world. I will say that. That's you know, true. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that every company needs to save the world. But what I think is valuable about this exercise is that by 
tying your purpose to something you believe is true mm. about the world, then you are still getting that kind of, as you said, like rallying call of people who think the way we think, like this brand is for you, this company is for you. And so I guess I just want to take the pressure off maybe founders or anybody. You don't world. have to save the world. It's okay. But it, but I think doing this exercise, even if you think, oh yeah, our product just does this one kind of limited thing. Yes, but it's tied to something you believe to be true about the world. And what is that thing? And that's the thing that's like going to really get to the heart of it. Yeah. And I think that is very motivating for everyone in the company too. Like if we just woke up every day and we're pushing pixels around, I don't know that we'd be doing our best work and feeling most fulfilled. And so I think there is something, you know, innately within brand purpose that is tied to obviously a brand strategy, but also the overall company's vision and mission and values and these, these bigger concepts. And so making sure that, you know, that is obvious, that it, it is uh, communicated as such, that people are on board with this and can almost like recite this kind of thing to you. Like I think that cohesion is really important from like a company perspective too to get everyone uh, feeling like there's more. It's bigger than themselves. It's bigger than just the transactional state of pushing pixels around. I, that such a good point that you made there. Like I think it just it often sometimes we get so like I don't know maybe it's me I get so like deep in the work that I don't pull out enough high to see like you know what is the impact of the work that that we're doing in this. Kind of as a reminder, like, hey, there's a there's a bigger there's a bigger world out there. I'm. It, it sounds like we're getting into like very philosophical kind of discussion now, but I think that does apply here. We're like, you know, you're seeing the impact. You're hearing like what exactly is the impact of our work here. Yeah, I think that's kind of what brand is in, intended to do. I don't know if you disagree with that or not, Shannon, but like you almost like start philosophical, and from that base, then you're able to break, make it more tactical and break it down. But you need that bigger, uh, that bigger story, that bigger starting point before you can decide what routes to take off of that. And so I, I don't mind the philosophical at all. And I think it's intended to be philosophical at a certain point. Same. Oh, I was hoping you would disagree, Shannon, so we can have a, a battle. <laughs> <laughs> I am just no. joking. I'm totally just joking. The second step here is once you have this brand purpose is to build out three to five stories around this brand purpose. I love the example you brought up earlier, Shannon, with uh, the three little pigs. Because like, oh. I guess you get, to select, you get to select the stories, but like depending on who the characters are, the story might be different. I, I, I feel like this is where this is going. Uh, Kevin, is that is that what that's about? How do you select those stories and what did it look like at, at Oyster? Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, to the little pigs example, it's maybe a little different than that, or that there's different people telling the different mm. pig stories. I may be exhausting that metaphor, but I'll explain how it worked at Oyster. So if, if you think of Oyster's, uh, Oyster's brand purpose as being about inequality, being about access globally to great jobs, there's a handful of stories that we have access to within that overall brand purpose. And so yeah, there's probably... 50, hundreds of stories like you can make there. And so we don't want to be deliberate about which stories we are choosing to have a point of view on and to create conversation around within the market. So as an example, we had a category story. So there was no software category that existed to solve a problem like this before. And so we chose a storyline of how software is solving this problem that used to exist um, and was done in a very manual way before, but we've kind of updated it. So there's a, a category story. Um, there was a persona story. And so understanding like, like 
main people working on this challenge are people ops professionals. And what is their life like today? It is, and this is in like peak COVID times and, and things. Like <clears throat> their life was hard. Like it was not a fun job to be in. Most of our jobs are not super fun to be in at the time, but theirs was rough. Um, everyone was wanting to go remote. They had to figure out all these different policies and things. And so championing them as like, this underserved, undervalued role within a business was really a critical story for us to tell. It played into the larger narrative. Um, and then we had a really high like like impact focus um, arm of our business too. Like we were we were going to be a B Corp and we were going to do all these other things. And so having that impact piece um, is so closely tied to the inequality aspect of the brand purpose too. But we wanted to be really specific about, well, what does that mean for us? So what stories do we show up in? A lot of that ended up being uh, some of the remote work policies that would come out. Some of these, the, the news stories around, uh, you know, countries around the world would have changes to their rules and regulations around remote work. Um, a lot of narratives at the time was about, oh, you can save money by hiring internationally. And it became, that was a really interesting one because it became almost this concept of like offshoring talent, which I kind of bristle at that, that idea. I don't kind of bristle, I a lot bristle at that idea. And for us, it's more about, no, the intention is not to offshore talent. The, inten the intention is that there are great people worldwide that you have access to now to hire and bring to your team. And so like, mm -hmm. that was our perspective on that story. And so being delivered about those stories was something that was really important to us. And, and I think being delivered about choosing that these are the stories we're going to show up for. Yes, we can opportunistically jump into other conversations too, but we are building strategies and pillars around these stories in particular from then channel strategies, folks, people like the whole, the whole nine yards in there. Mm -hmm. I, I think what Kevin just did a great job of illustrating is that like the brand brand stories and your brand strategy in general isn't in a in a vacuum or in a silo. Mm -hmm. Like we are expressing the priorities of the company from a product right. perspective, from a, a customer perspective, from all of these different perspectives through each of the stories. So it's not like you know we went away, came up with them, and then came back. It was. Right oh, wait, what are we actually trying to accomplish as a company? And like, how do all of our business priorities like flow through the brand strategy? That's interesting. I was going to ask how you, how do you select those stories? And uh, Shannon, you just answered it. It's around what is the overall business strategy and the product strategy? Is that how you would advise companies if they were like trying to pick their strategy, their stories? Look at your, what your company strategy and product store, uh, strategy is all about. I think that sounds right. I think there needs to be a connection like like brand is not in a silo um like that just as like our purpose is not in a silo like the brand team should not be in a silo within a company either and so we the brand teams need to be connected to product marketing to growth marketing to product strategy to company strategy and all these things so typically when you're choosing those stories yes it's, it'd be great if there is a product story to tell within those stories yes it would be great if there is a, a story oriented toward a persona um for instance shannon and i are both at rattle today which is a revenue tech platform that helps sales teams be more productive. One of our primary personas there is revenue operations. And so what stories exist for us to tell around revenue operations, let's pick one of those stories as well. And then like the mission impacts, maybe more of the philosophical touchy feely stories, like those ones, you can totally grab some of those too, but making sure that you're at least having a mix of all those things. Like if it's all philosophical stories that may not move the needle as much on the business side, if it's all product stories that may not build as much brand affinity for you because it's very transactional and, yeah. and pixel oriented. So making sure you have a mix and then developing and evolving that mix as time goes on based on 
where you're at as a business. Makes sense. The other interesting thing that you mentioned around each of those stories are not weighted the same. I think I saw in your, uh, in your the thing that you sent me, uh, Gavin, like the content weight. There was a percentage, and then one of them was forty percent and twenty percent, something like that. I'm guessing like that's super interesting for me because like now you're you're thinking about like well, how much content should we create for this, uh, and really that's I guess tied up all to what we were just talking about now that. You know, your strategy uh, as a company and a product could be also defining how much content and where you create con uh, more and less of. Yeah. I mean, it sounds a lot more scientific than it might have been in practice. <laughs> but the, the idea is that we have a limited number of resources. And if we have five stories that we're going to tell, how do we divvy up our resources to go and tell those stories? Yes, you can split them equally, but perhaps there is a more there's more urgency or prioritization around category creation today. And so tell 40% of our time goes to telling that story. Um, I think Shannon, you were kind of in the weeds of actually bringing those percentages to life. So I don't know how helpful those were in practice, but like in theory, that was the idea behind it. It's kind of like a prioritization resource exercise. In terms of those stories, I know it's important to have like characters for them and like voice. Each of those stories would have like different voices. Shannon, I know this is like, Probably, I'm assuming it's your bread and butter. I, I read some articles about, about this. I'm curious, like, where, uh, how does that fit in here? This brand voice and archetype. I know I saw the creator is the archetype for, for, for Oyster. I, I love talking about this stuff. So you might have to cut me off at some point. Um, my, uh, my first agency job, I was working uh, on the brand communication strategy team at Siegel and Gale, a global branding firm. Um, and this was like really what we did, like brand voice exploration and definition for dozens of clients, mostly B2B uh, clients. Um, and you're right when you say that you're thinking about it as a character. So it's like who is actually telling that story? And that's where like the not that we're, you know, belaboring this, but like that's where the three little pigs kind of difference comes in is like who is telling that story and what is their perspective on the story that you're trying to tell. Um, and I actually, I found my way to marketing through uh, theater and um, the storytelling and writing. Um, and so I think about developing a brand personality or, or and like brand voice is kind of like a subset of that as like creating a, a literal character who has motivations, who has things they care about. And they, and you know, whenever you are writing plays or whenever you are directing plays or you're, um, you know, part of a play creation process there, you're looking for your actors and the writing to have a specific arc so that you feel like the character that you're watching in act one is the same character at the end of the play, right? It would be weird if the character did something totally to break their moral compass or the thing that they said that they've cared about this whole time or like the goal that they've had like and i mean we all saw season uh season eight of game of thrones and we all hated it so like you know what it's like when <laughs> the character breaks uh right. in a way that feels like mm. unexpected and unnatural and unsatisfying and so when you think about developing your brand personality and your brand voice what you're looking for is that consistency and please note that I don't mean monotony and I don't mean uh, like homogeneity. 
I mean consistency. And consistency is a function of, well, actually trust is a function of consistency. So being consistent in how you go to market and the ways that you express yourself and the tone and, and all of that, giving people um, a clear expectation and meeting that expectation every time is a huge way to build trust with your customers and with your audiences. Um, and so thinking about, about brand personality and uh, you know, having attributes that can guide um, people who are, you know, the kind of the mouthpieces for the brand. So specifically writers and designers are, are going to be the people who are most using these tools. When you're thinking about these attributes, you want them to feel like um, the metaphor I like is like spices in a particular cuisine. So if you think about, and you know, I, I live in France, I love living in France, uh, but the Mexican food here is trash. It's absolutely terrible. And I love Mexican food. Okay. <laughs> and so when I go to a Mexican restaurant here and there are peanuts in my Mexican food, I'm like, this isn't, this is not right. This is not consistent. This does not align with my understanding and experience of Mexican food because cumin, garlic, chili, uh, paprika, onion, like those are the spices I associate with Mexican food, right? Not peanuts. And so some dishes might have more or less of some of the spice, but it's all going to still taste like Mexican food. And so whenever you're talking about modulating your brand voice across audiences, across touch mm -hmm. points, across channels, you're still using that same set of spices, but like maybe this one's really garlicky and like this one has a lot of chili, um, but it should all feel like it's Mexican food. <laughs> I'm hungry now. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> <laughs> How did you land on the, the creator? Uh, archetype for for oyster. Like I'm guessing that's. I mean, I'm assuming it's through reviewing everything and interviews to customer. I'm I'm not entirely sure, but I'm curious how that that came about. Yeah. Um. I'll. I don't remember the process super well, so Kevin, you might have to jump in and save me here. But I'll I'll talk a little bit about just like archetyping processes in general. Um, and so there are a lot of tools out there that will help uh, marketers uh, choose archetypes. There are generally 12. That's most of the like archetype wheels I've seen um, uh, have 12 different personalities or sort of stock characters that you might see in like, uh, you know, a movie or a book or something like that. Like, um, and uh, they're generally broken down into like four different categories. And anyway, you can look up these archetype wheels. They're very interesting and they're very helpful because you can look at them. And the way I usually like to start is by plotting your most direct competition on the archetype wheel. So each archetype will have certain characteristics associated with it. And if you think about your competition, you can, uh, and you know, this isn't going to be exact because it's you assigning things to your competition, not their self-conception. Um, if you are looking at uh, how they go to market and how they express themselves, you can kind of maybe see like, oh, everybody in our category kind of clusters around these certain archetypes. So do we want to ride the draft 
of all of the people who are like doing this? Do we want to sound the same? Do we want to be consistent? Do we want to play in the same space? Or do we want to take advantage of the white space that we've identified and try to define ourselves in in that way? Um, At Oyster, I think it really was about just kind of matching our mission, vision, and values with the values and point of view that aligned with, uh, as you said, the the creator for for Oyster. And so it, it kind of was like, we already had who we were. We just needed to find the right um, the right description to sort of crystallize that and then make it more actionable. Yeah, and I, I think our process is very similar to what you described, Shan. There was the competitor piece first, and then we did sit down with, I think the, the exercise was led by a brand agency we were working with, but it can be could have been done in-house just as easily. And we brought together people from throughout the marketing organization. There were 50 of us in marketing at the time. And so there were maybe 10 of those 50 who were on the call together, um, along with product representatives, sales representatives, and some senior leadership, just so we have perspectives from other parts of the business. And then it was an exercise in bringing our perspectives together, kind of voting on which archetypes most resonated. And then I think it was a relatively easy process for us because everything kind of started pointing us toward the creator when. That makes sense. I think that's, um, you know, just that exercise all uh, is, is something that I, I, I do see. Um, I want to move on to the step three now about building your your structures around this story. I'm curious what that means for uh, Kevin. Like, you, what does that mean to to add in the structure to to the story? Yeah. So if, if you think through, like, you have your brand purpose, uh, there's a handful of other brand pieces that you'll have within your strategy, but the stories in particular, if you end up with three to five of those stories, then the actual structures is like, how do you get those stories out to market? And so that becomes touch points, it becomes channels, and it becomes people. And so for us um, at Oyster, it was about listing out, well, what are all the different channels that we own? Um, what are the different channels we have access to from like an earned media perspective? How do we want to orient these stories into those channels? I want to place them there. And so for instance, a lot of the product stories were about uh, like lifecycle communication. Um, they were about uh, webinars, they were about events. A lot of the impact and mission stuff was about PR and earned media and podcasts and places that we could put our spokespeople. And then we also had the opportunity, we had a really big ambassador push within the company. And so like our CEO was a really vocal presence on LinkedIn. A lot of our senior leadership team was vocal and we would build their personas up as a marketing strategy. That gave us then additional like outlets to talk about these stories. And so we ended up assigning like, um, like the CEO was the category story and our co-founder was the mission impact story and our chief workplace officer was the persona story. And so they're just like, those naturally fit anyway, but making, making that extra deliberate about when we spend time crafting our CEO's um, LinkedIn posts or crafting his speech at conferences, like it's going to be oriented toward this story in particular, rather than we could tell any and every story that we want to in this, in this instance, um, which can make it really hard and can lead to, you know, um, I know it kind of waters down the overall message, but if you really focus it and say, well, no, our CEO is talking about this thing everywhere that he's talking about this, let's be deliberate about that. It adds some structure to it. So that's, that's kind of the structure pieces. You think of channels, touch points and people, and then you'd be deliberate about focusing in those areas. That makes sense. I think that now you're putting, it's interesting you mentioned that you wrote your father's story. Uh, when he's talking to other places, he would tell, he would, 
he would tell that specific story to to people is is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Yeah, like we would. I mean, he would tell a lot of stories that he would want to tell also. So it wasn't all just like, you have to tell this one story. Um, but like the, 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 I guess the touchstone of the stories was this particular narrative. It was like, how did, and it was great for him because like he created Oyster because of a pain and need that he felt mm. innately within like this gap in software for previous companies that he had built. And so it was a very personal story for him to tell anyway. And it tied very closely to the category piece, which is great. Like, I think it's hard to go the other way where if your founder doesn't have a clear perspective on like the why other than maybe there was a market opportunity or something. Like you try to have to like retrofit that in a way. Like that can be a bit tougher. But in Oyster's case, it was a very natural fit. And so that's like the starting point for sure. And maybe, you know, 70% of the stories that he tells are related to the category piece and 30% can be... Um, I don't know how he does work remotely or how he thinks about leadership or what, whatever comes to mind in more of an opportunistic way. But the core is based around this, this story. And that's where the structures come into, where the percentages come in. Like mm. the majority of it should be this, but there's plenty of room to be flexible within that. I'm curious, like you, there's a, we've talked about the three steps now. Like, how do we, how do you, how did you roll it out to the Oyster team? I mean, I mean, maybe this is more a question for Shan. I'm curious, like, uh, did you present? Did you all present this to the team and be like, "This is what we're doing"? <laughs> the content team. This is what you're talking about now. Forty percent this, and then like, okay, make sure that the arch like ha- like archetype. Like, make sure you're talking to the the creator. Like, I'm curious, like how the rollout of this storytelling framework happened at Oyster once you kind of finalize all the pieces and all the steps together. Yeah, it definitely was something that we explicitly rolled out and people had access to. And it was like, this is our strategy. And, you know, we had a a fabulous team at Oyster who are, you know, all of our contributors are strategists in their own right. And so saying you are building your individual pieces and the things that you're working on on the back of this overall strategy. Um, And so the content and editorial strategy was coming directly off of what is the brand strategy and, you know, et cetera for the other, um, you know, disciplines that, that we have uh, in, in the marketing team. You know, everyone isn't going to be supporting the stories quite so explicitly as the content and editorial team, uh, but everybody is in service of getting these things out into the world because we've decided to, to prioritize them. Yeah. And I think we had a couple of advantages with that too, just given how we organized the team, like content editorial, we're very close to brand. Um, like Shannon came into Oyster from an editorial perspective and like was the people manager for a lot of content people at first. And so there was that natural connection there. Um, and then I think we had, like there was also work to do on like the company perspective too. So I remember I put together like a little presentation in all hands and had like this dumb slide that people could like download and save to their desktop or something just as a reminder. But I think like that, that broader communication piece is really critical because then it allows brand marketing to play more of that role of shepherd and to have something to point back to and be like, oh, remember when we said this? This thing that you're doing out in the world is not quite in the right space yet. This is how we might tweak it or think about it differently. And you have that thing to refer to. And so I think there is that piece of it from like a company perspective too. I wouldn't expect, you know, our CX team or our product team to have memorized all of our brand strategy and voice and tone and things. But as long as they know where to find it, as long as right. they know, like, we'll help you stay on track with what we want that to sound, what right. you feel like, that's the most right. important piece. 
Yeah, it becomes like the most important, you know, I mean, it becomes armor for mm. your marketing team to be able to say like, no, no, like, look at this thing. We, we all agreed. <laughs> this, this is the, this is the standard. This is what we're trying to to get to. Um, and yeah, like, like Kevin said, I, I would never expect that people outside of even like the brand team are memorizing like all, all of this mm. stuff. And at a certain point for um, people who are not just creatives, but who are generative on behalf of the, of the marketing department, you kind of internalize it. Like it kind of becomes uh, second nature. And what I think a, a huge strength is, or like a, something to aim for at an organizational level. So even across product and engineering is not to train everybody to be able to write a tweet that sounds like your company, but is to, to uh, acculturate everyone to see if something isn't right. Oh, okay. So to be able to have that, to have the negative reaction of like, that doesn't seem like us is a much lower bar and still very valuable to have the, uh, the company, you know, have an instinct for, even if they're not, you know, executing and, and writing or designing on behalf of the brand. Yeah. Makes sense. Where it gets really fun for me is when it comes into those decisions, like we're, we're having to make real decisions on this. Like for example, at Oyster, um, the Ukraine war started when we were there. And like, that is a very globally impactful thing that we wanted to have a brand reaction to. And like having a brand strategy and having this brand purpose made it very easy for us to look at this decision. Like, do we say something? What do we say? How do we act? Hold it up against our brand purpose and say, yes, obviously we need to, we need to do something and save the war. I mean, that's more of an obvious one, but I think one that was a bit more subtle is that at Oyster, we are kind of in this, like this interesting, almost like, it's an interesting conversation around the difference between global employment and remote work. And so when a lot of conversations were coming up about, oh, remote work has allowed me to go and travel the world and still keep my same job. Like, do we as, as Oyster want to be part of that narrative? And you hold it up to our brand purpose and no, our brand purpose is about creating access to jobs for people around the world. It is not about me, Kevin in Idaho, now being able to travel the world with all my privilege because I get to be remote, working remotely. Yeah. And like, that is the story we want to tell. Like that's right. different than what that's our brand cool. purpose is. Like that is a really clarifying moment because it could have been very easy for us to get sidetracked and go down different rabbit holes there. That totally makes sense. I mean, I love how you're calling out that pe the people, in the uh, people in the company should be able to like say what's, uh, what's not on brand and like something that our brand would say. But like, I'm hearing that there's no specific editorial process where like every content has to go through brand and be like that's that's on brand that's not on brand like come on Ooh. it was like fix that or is there was there a process where like a review why you yeah. both like, or should there be <laughs> yeah so i've i've been on um you know when i it's funny when i was at siegel and gale i was I literally was the brand police for one of our clients. Like every piece, every piece of advertising right. came to my desk for a brand voice check. And I was evaluating and like giving feedback and it was, uh, it was wild. Uh, do not recommend. I do not recommend. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, it took a lot of time. So there's like that extreme where you're putting, uh, we'd like to call them the brand cuffs on everybody. And you're saying absolutely everything has to come through so, us. Yeah. But what I really think it is, is about empowering and enabling 
the teams that really need it. So like your customer success team, uh, your anyone who's like building or writing in your help center, uh, sales teams, you know, people outside the marketing team who are communicating on behalf of the company. This also um, applies to spokespeople too. Uh, you know, getting proper media training and like working really closely with a, a PR agency if you don't have it in house who like knows how to. Uh, internalize and digest a, a brand voice and a point of view and can um, coach your your thought leaders on that. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of things went through uh, the the content and brand team because I, uh, I have pretty high editorial style standards and I wanted everything proofread before it went out. That makes sense. Um, my general rule of thumb is... Uh, two people should see everything. Mm, so no no single single set of eyeballs, something goes out in the world. I think that's a dangerous place to be in. And so I think, um, you know, even if you don't have a dedicated editor or proofreader on the team, even if you don't have like brand marketers who have the time to review absolutely everything, as long as you're checking in with like at least one other person, I think it helps up the quality and consistency. Yeah. I think the two eyeballs rule is great. And I, I yeah. think even the difference between talking about it as brand police versus talking about it as a brand shepherd, like mm. I think those are very different feelings, right? Like, yeah. I don't know, like if you rambling, your role felt like you had brand police on your team, like how would that make you feel as a creator or as a marketer versus if you had a brand shepherd mm. to like guide you and watch over you and things like those, those give different vibes. And I think that is, I, I think of that very intentionally when I think of how we, communicate what brand marketing's role is in a company. That's great. I like I like that uh that paradigm shift or that mindset shift that it's more a, a brand shepherd. I wanna start wrapping up and ask you both this question. First with Shannon, you know, you've held several brand communication marketing roles and leadership positions at companies like Dashlane, Oyster, and now Rattle. I'm curious what's a power up that's helped you in your career? Something that's you know helped you get a leg up and accelerate your your itself yeah um i love this question and i'm gonna i'm gonna answer from a sort of like philosophical a mindset like kind of kind of side of things um so as i mentioned like i come to marketing from a creative and like a theater background and um in school uh you know i think i was in grad school still and um paula wagner who is a, a very well-known and successful um, film producer, TV and film producer. She's an alumna of um, the school that I went to, and she came back to address um, the the student body in the School of Drama. Um, and uh, somebody asked her something along the lines of, um, how do you know like, how to attach yourself to the right projects? Like, How do you know what will be successful? Um, and what she said, and I apply this to my daily life and career all the time, she said, the secret is nobody knows anything. And I think about that every day. Nobody really knows anything. And it's, this is not a, marketing is not a science mm. actually. And especially brand marketing and creative, it is not a science. And so to think that there is a right way even, you know, there are only three things you can do that will work is like a really limiting and anxiety inducing kind of mindset to have. And so I think, <laughs> I think thinking that like, if nobody knows anything really, 
about marketing, then like, I'm, I, I think things. So why don't I have a voice? Why don't I have a perspective? I do actually. And Mm. my perspective is just as valuable, interesting, creative as anybody else in the room, because this isn't a science with right answers. It's, you know, people coming together with thoughtful, considered hypotheses and creative ideas and imagination and collaborating. That's so good. Nobody knows anything. It's easy for you to share something. I love that. Yeah. How about you, Kevin? I'm curious what, you know, you have more than a decade of marketing leadership roles, Vox Media, Buffer, Oyster, and Alvarado. Curious, what's a career part for you that's helped accelerate your career? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I resonate a lot with what Shannon said because I may have that experience, but I feel like I don't know anything most every day too. <laughs> so I think what's been, what's been key for me is curiosity. I think that's maybe a, one of the biggest power-ups that has helped me because I came into marketing through journalism and came into tech like totally blind and cold to everything. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And I credit any of the successes I've had to just being like really curious and, and also being very lucky to have landed in places that allowed me to be curious and allowed me to, to go and research things and to learn things. I think one of the most helpful pieces of advice I got is that it's, it's okay to answer a question by saying, I don't know the answer to that, but I will find out. I think that phrasing was so helpful for me because it gave me permission to not know and it gave Whoever was asking me the question, confidence that I would go and figure out how it is, how I would do the thing that I don't know how to do. Um, I'm not like 100% successful in always figuring out how to do the thing, but I'm at least curious to understand like, how do I get one step closer to understanding this mm-hmm. thing? And I think that has helped me go from content to brand, like all the stuff we just shared about brand, I had no idea about a few years ago and have had the chance to learn it all and just have stayed curious about it. Um, and so that's something that I, I hold pretty dear is that curiosity mindset. If you enjoyed this episode, you'd love the Marketing Power-Ups newsletter. I share the actionable takeaways and break down the frameworks of world-class marketers. Go to marketingpowerups.com to subscribe and you'll instantly unlock the three best frameworks that top marketers use to hit their KPIs consistently and wow their colleagues. I want to say thank you to you for listening and please like and follow Marketing Power-Ups on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you feel extra generous, head to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a comment on YouTube. goes a long way in others finding out about Marketing Power-Ups. Thanks to Mary Sullivan for creating the artwork and design. And thank you to Faisal Kaigo for editing the intro video. And of course, thank you for listening. That's all for now. Have a powered update. Marketing Power-Ups. Until the next episode.